0: Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we're going to be talking to a guy by the name of Tim Alberta, Canada, how I call him.
1: <laughs> Tim Alberta, author of a new book, The Kingdom, the Power and the Glory, staff writer at The Atlantic. And you guys may remember his uh, first book that he wrote called American Carnage, which was like bestseller about the rise of Trump and all that sort of stuff.
0: So he's an evangelical Christian who looks at evangelical Christians sucking off Donald Trump and he's like, This is not what you guys are supposed to be about. Yes, that's that's the gist of Tim Alberta, Canada. So it'll be interesting to get into the specifics with him. I'm actually really looking forward to this interview.
1: Yeah, Um, I talked to him before, and it was a great conversation. So that's why we wanted to spend more time with him.
0: Yeah, so if you're just watching this on YouTube and you're only seeing the intro, this is a teaser clip. Go listen to the full thing, uh, the full audio podcast for free if you'd like, or you could sign up on Substack Below, $5 a month. You'll get the full interview, the video of it, and you'll get it a day early. All right, so before we get into that, though— Um, this has been the big story that everybody's talking about. And I understand why that is. It makes perfect sense to me that this is on the top of everybody's mind. Mm -hmm. But of course, Donald Trump was effectively kicked off of the presidential ballot in the state of Colorado after the Supreme Court or the Supreme Court of Colorado ruled in a four to three decision. You violated, uh, Section three of the 14th Amendment, which is like the disqualification clause, which basically says if you engage in an insurrection or uh, aid and assist people who engage who engage in an insurrection or give comfort to them, uh, then you're not allowed to run. Right. And uh, so they kicked him off. Now, at the same time, this is the part that everybody needs to remember. There's other states where they came to the exact opposite conclusion. So in North Carolina, for example, they just had uh, I don't know if it was the court that decided it or if it was just election officials in North Carolina. Mm. Uh, But they said, no, we have no authority to kick him off the ballot. He's on the ballot. And I think there's been over a dozen of these sorts of cases coming up in different states. Yeah. And most of those, I I believe it's eight. Trump actually won. Okay, so he's won in more states than he's lost on this constitutional question. I think the question.
1: number I saw was that there were eighteen of the challenges. Oh, 18. But I, but I think you're right that not all of them have made their way through the courts. No, yeah. But so far, this is the many of them have, and this is the first one that um, they have prevailed on saying he should. Keep yeah, it
0: this off. is the first one where Trump lost, lost. But there are other cases that are adjacent to this where Trump's side lost. Also, we can get into that in just a second. But um, so now this is a big deal. It's going to go to the Supreme Court. And they're going to make a decision. Is he allowed to run, or is he not allowed to run? Mm-hmm. Now, everybody that I see is just sort of assuming, well, of course, the Supreme Court is going to side with Trump, yeah, and I actually have a not a disagreement, but a, the emph- I disagree with the emphasis because mm. people are saying like for sure they're going to lean that way. I'm not as sure as everybody. I think it's like a sixty five percent chance Trump's side wins, but thirty five percent is a is an actual shot. I'm, and I can explain why I think that. Yeah, go ahead. sure.
1: I mean, I'm more in the uh, 95 to 5 categories. So Not I'm,
0: even 90-10. See, I find that crazy, to be honest. I'm,
1: I'm more skeptical than you. And the reason I I actually think so, first of all, we can talk about some of the like legal analysis here, which I think is important. Um, we can get to that. But I also don't want to kid ourselves that like that's what these justices on the court actually do. They decide what decision they want to make through their like partisan and ideological Lens, and then they sort of work backwards from there. Is my experience. Um, I suspect that in their heart of hearts, there probably is a majority on the court that would love to be done done with Donald Trump forever. I also suspect that they do not have the balls to actually kick him off the ballot. They don't want to that decision to have to rest with them, and for them to be the ones who are ultimately pushing him out of public life.
0: Okay, so here's my reaction to that. Yeah. Number one, this point I keep making over and over. These are not MAGA Republicans on the Supreme Court. They're just not. They're way more like Mitt Romney.
1: Outside of Alito, Clarence Thomas, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, the, there's two for sure. They're yeah. give it, but the rest of them are just not that because yeah. these are these are like highly educated Ivy League elites, okay? And they, they're they very consistent on all corporate and economic issues. They are not at all consistent on social issues. So that's the first two point two points. Beyond that, guys, there are... Even Trump appointed Republicans who slapped down some of those 61 cases that Trump brought uh, to try to overturn the election. So, his own appointed justices, who everybody assumed would ideologically be like really with him on all this stuff, not only did they say, No, Trump, you're losing this, it's like your case is so stupid, you don't even have standing, get out of my courtroom. Mm-hmm. Right? So, that's just an example of oftentimes these judges are. More intelligent and intellectual than like your average run of the mill MAGA Republican who is representing some district deep in rural Georgia or whatever. Yeah. So I think that I think that I also think they want like they all want Nikki Haley and the donor class. You know, they they want Nikki Haley. They're giving Nikki Haley all this money with well, the remaining alive Koch brother is giving Nikki Haley all this money. And I think that the court is actually deeply in alignment with the donor class, as we've Definitely. seen a lot with the Justice Thomas stuff. So I wouldn't be surprised. And and here's the main point, too. If you really want to make the decision, they have everything they need to make the decision. I mean, if you read the actual text of the Constitution on this issue, it's like, oh, that obviously applies.
1: So I have the text in front of me just because I do think if you just take, like, the plain face reading of it, most normies are going to be like, Yeah, that sounds about right. And they are
0: saying that. We'll get to that in a minute.
1: They say no person shall hold any office, civil or military, under the United States who, having previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion uh, against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Very simple to understand, and I think most people overwhelmingly feel like January 6th is appropriately classified as an insurrection. Clearly, all those people who stormed the Capitol and were like, 1776, we're doing this thing. They were there at the behest of Donald Trump. The presidency, most people would say, is an office of the United States. Although a lower
0: court in Colorado said yes. the opposite. They were like, no, 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 he did commit an insurrection, but the presidency is not an, it's office, not an office, so office. this we're doesn't like, apply. Okay, That's um, literally the dumbest ruling I've ever heard. But
1: about. I do think, and we'll talk about this, the poll that just came out in a moment, just like the normie reading of that based on commonly understood definitions and language, you go like, yeah, that actually kind of fits to a T.
0: Yeah. And uh, the other point that I find very interesting is there is some precedent in adjacent cases which may have surprising results for people. So it, there was a New Mexico official who was removed from office simply because he was at January 6th. Mm. So they said, oh, you were partaking in this insurrection. It's like a sheriff, right? Uh, no, no I thought, cor- originally a- thought it was a sheriff, but actually I don't know. It was like a court, a uh,
1: county supervisor or something, something like, like that. that yeah. And
0: then, But there's also, this is one example. I believe there's actually another example too, but I was looking for it the other night when this decision came out and I couldn't yeah. find the details of it. But I remember covering another. So there's at least two examples of... A court saying you're you partook in an in, in insurrection and this violates the Constitution. You can't hold any elected office and so they kicked him out. So in other words, the Supreme Court has enough there if they want to. So I guess the thing that's been frustrating me is when people pretend like in a very glib and smug way, they act like, But well, there's nothing here. Yeah. Like you no, 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 no. If you want to take that position, fine. If you want to side with Trump, fine. But like give me an actual argument and address the actual points. Because I've seen literally, I'm not kidding, nobody who's like, oh, Trump should be able to run. Nobody actually makes an argument. It's just like, (laughs) like, okay, can you make a point?
1: Yeah, so a lot of um, the people who are arguing that Trump should be able to run, the basic case that they're making is like democracy. Like this should be up to the voters and the voters should have the final say and it shouldn't be left up to the courts. Like this is how the process works. Trump should be able to run and people should be able to decide for themselves whether they think he should be president of the United States again. That, to me, is not taking, like, there's no legal argument there. The real argument that's being made there, in my opinion, is just you don't think that this section of the 14th Amendment should exist. You don't think that there should be any circumstances where a candidate is kicked off the ballot for committing an insurrection or rebellion. You just disagree with this whole idea, which, I mean, that's fine. That's a legitimate position you could take. It's not a position I agree with, though, because I think that the state has an interest in being able to bar from office people who have directly attacked or tried to undermine the state. So I think it's entirely reasonable, appropriate, and good that we have that in the Constitution. And then it becomes a matter of applying it. And granted, I think it's tricky. There's very little precedent here. Um, There's really nothing on the books in terms of, okay, what is the technical definition of an insurrection? And importantly, um, who gets to decide? Because that's one of the legal questions here, too, is Does a state court get to look at this text of the Constitution, decide what's an insurrection and then apply it? Or does someone have to be found guilty in a court of law? Does there have to be an act of Congress that is passed in order to determine this or that thing was an insurrection and now this actually applies? That's all left. Like, we don't know. We don't have answers to any of those questions. So the way this court interpreted it is kind of honestly like the normie way, like, OK, here's the definition of an insurrection. I'm looking at this is the Merriam-Webster definition, an act or instance of revolting against civil authority or an established government. Check. That sure sounds to fit. Sounds like it fits. Did Donald Trump engage in or give aid and comfort to someone who was engaged in insurrection? I think it'd be pretty hard to deny that that wasn't the case. So they're like, all right, so it meets all the criteria. And by the way, obviously the presidency is an office of the United States. So there we go. Um, I, but, you know, that's why we have a Supreme Court to take this up and lay out, okay, here are the guidelines. Here's what it does mean. Here's what the process is supposed to do. But like I said, I think most of the people who are having a reaction against this, they really don't care about the legal analysis. They just seem to be opposed entirely to the idea this should even be a provision in the Constitution at all. Okay,
0: but here's the problem with that. These same people should be screaming from the rooftops to repeal our term limits that we have on the president. Because that is, by definition, undemocratic. Yeah. You're saying you're not allowed to vote for this person a third time.
1: Or, like, the age limit or the, you know, they uh, this one I agree with, but the natural born citizen limit.
0: Yeah, and and so it's like, all right, well, then be consistent. But it's they only invoke it in this instance, and I think you're Trump. right. The, the argument that they're implying is, well, you know, this shouldn't even be in the Constitution. And it's like, I want to hear you actually address, like, the points, right? So the best argument I've heard on the other side is... Um, He hasn't been convicted of insurrection yet. And in fact, he wasn't even charged with insurrection, whether it be in the Georgia cases or from Jack Smith. And I I genuinely think that's a fair point. But the reaction to that is like, but we can also just let the Supreme Court decide now if indeed it was an insurrection. Mm -hmm. Right. Like this is like people. Oh, my God, there's been no due process. This is the due process. Right. Like we are watching the due process unfold. Right. And by the way, all these people, it's funny because they seem to think or say oh, well, the Supreme Court's obviously going to side with Trump. But then they melt down over it anyway, and they're like, this shouldn't even be a case. And I don't understand that. If it's going to be a slam dunk, then isn't it just like rubbing it in everybody's face? see Trump was right, Trump was right.
1: Right, then it's Uh, like, all right, well, relax. You're going to get your way, so. And it's the same thing with the 91 (laughs) criminal
0: charges also, the stuff around election subversion, where they tried to overturn the election and the fake elector scheme. And it's like, Trump is still saying to this day that the election was stolen from him. And it's like, okay, you're literally going to get your day in court multiple times in Georgia and in D.C. with the federal case to say, told you I'm right. Look, it's stolen. Here's all my evidence I'm presenting. We all know that's not going to happen because the election wasn't stolen from him, yeah. right? And so on this one, again, I think he's likely to win it. Um, but at the same time, I think it'll be more interesting and maybe even closer. Like I heard Sagar say to you the other day, oh, it's either going to be 9-0 or like 7-2. I wouldn't be surprised if it's if it's closer than that. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it's closer than that.
1: I have I, I have no idea. I don't wanna wait. But I mean it's like I said, to me the controlling principle is the cowardice of the court, which is why I think it's very, very, very likely that they strike this down because they just aren't willing to insert themselves this directly into history and also given i mean this shouldn't be a factor but i'm sure they'll be thinking in the back of their heads and trump is going to play this up and already is playing this up this idea that country's a tinderbox and they're going to freak out i mean the the trumpist movement has basically turned themselves into like terrorists holding everybody hostage that everyone's yeah, terrified like of like lighting the match. them off
0: he's lighting the match and he's like the country's on fire it's like you're lighting the fucking match right
1: but that that threat you know, looms large in the minds of many of these people. So um, I that's why I feel like it is very unlikely to succeed at this.
0: But Court. now let me give everybody the numbers because yeah, this is really interesting. This is interesting. So it's a new uh, new poll from YouGov uh, among all U.S. adults. What percentage approve of the Colorado Supreme Court ruling? Fifty four percent. Only thirty five percent disapprove of the Colorado ruling. Interesting. So a majority of the country says, yeah, kick him off the ballot. Yeah. And he, does, by, he can't go on the ballot points now. So now let me I'll give you the, the deeper breakdown here. Democrats, 84 percent support kicking him off the ballot. Only eight percent oppose um, independents. 48 percent support kicking him off the ballot. Only 35 percent oppose. So it's a strong plurality of independents. Too. Yeah. And even when you get to Republicans. 66 percent of Republicans don't want to kick him off the ballot, but 24 percent
1: do, Hmm. which is more than I would have thought. That surprised me, actually. That was kind of the most surprising number to me.
0: So, yeah, that. So these numbers are kind of damning for Trump, if you ask me. And then I went back and also pulled up some of these other numbers because I remember every time I see a poll, it asking people questions about like Trump and the legality of what he's done. Every time people are like, oh, pfft. Homie's a criminal by far, and it's like, and it's kind of, it's sort of like the the Biden polls with age. Yeah, like if you ask people, like, is Biden too old to be president? It's like this, ninety eight percent say Biden's too old to be president. It's not that much, but it's like seventy yeah. something percent, right? right? So for this one, it was a Quinnipiac poll, Quinnipiac, P-O. <laughs> <laughs> Quinnipiac poll, Quinnipiac um, poll, where fifty seven percent of Americans believe he should be disqualified. Trump should be disqualified in the event of criminal charges.
1: Criminal charges or conviction? Criminal charges. Whoa. Whoa. Okay.
0: I got another I one they're for just you.
1: being con- consistent then.
0: And then you have Donald Trump, if he's committed a crime, just committed a crime, over 60%—oh, I'm sorry. 60% say he has committed a crime. Okay. Yeah. So, in other words, anytime you actually ask about this stuff, there is, there's this weird feeling, this, like, status quo bias or, yeah. like, conventional wisdom bias yeah. in U.S. media where it's like, Oh, man, like, oh, don't poke the bear. Don't go after Trump. Oh, this is never going to work. Teflon Don. But actually, the normie reaction is sort of like, fuck him. Get him out of here. (laughs) Everybody knows he's a criminal. Like, that is the normie reaction.
1: Yeah, definitely. You know what was interesting to me? I don't know if you saw this poll. There's an Iowa caucus poll that tested a bunch of Trump's, like, insane statements to see how it landed with Republican caucus voters. And um, many of them. To our great chagrin that actually made people more likely to vote for him. So, for example, his thing about like poisoning the blood blood of our. Yeah. So that made people 42 percent more likely to vote for him and only 28 percent less likely. So on net net with the Republican base, they're like, yeah, we like that. We're going to vote for him even harder now. The one that tested the worst that overwhelmingly made people less likely to vote for him was 2020 election fraud justifies terminating parts of the Constitution. And it made 47 percent of people less likely, so almost a majority, less likely to vote for him and only 14 percent more likely to vote for him. And, um, you know, it made me question a little bit of the way that I was looking at the Republican base and the bind that people like Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley were in going after him. Because I always felt like, you know, the things that are really the biggest problem with Trump that people hate the most about him, they're kind of off limits with the Republican base because they just see the world in this totally like upside down different way but at least when it comes to like the chaos and the authoritarianism associated with his election fraud claims There are a lot of people who are very uncomfortable with that in the Republican Party. And so I think they perhaps missed an opportunity to make something of that, because even there, you know, there are plenty of normie Republicans who may even be open to some of his election fraud claims, but have this very like traditional conservative law and order view of like January 6th was a mess and it was chaos and it was bad. And I didn't really like that. And I wasn't really comfortable with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, in the midterms, 55 percent of the Republican candidates were election deniers. And everybody was saying going into a red wave, red wave, red wave. And I was like, I don't know about that, because one of the things I thought was it's a bridge too far when people are still saying 2020 was bullshit at this late date. Yeah. Uh, And that was, I think, one of the reasons, along with abortion, why the Republicans sort of got wiped out. And so they keep getting smacked across the face with this lesson of like your abortion position is too extreme and your election denialism is too extreme. And what you just read to me really points in that direction that like, yeah, I remember when Trump said that on Truth Social, terminate the Constitution, anything to get me back in office, basically. Yeah. And it's like, that's insane. Like, that is insane. The percentage of people who are just going to flat agree with that comment, even among all the Trump sycophants in the country, et cetera, it's only gonna be like. 15% 15% that are like, yeah, right on. Terminate the Constitution.
1: 14%, according yeah. to this poll in Iowa. And was a conservative place very of the Republican place. base and who actually is going to vote in a caucus. So, I mean, listen, obviously the approach that Nikki Haley and Rhonda Santos took of, like, kid gloves with Trump and, like, you know, Nikki Haley, her signature move with her criticisms of Trump is to find the, like, three things Trump did that were actually good and be like, you know, he spent a lot of money. Yeah. It was an $8 trillion oh, the, the dollar new deficit. One, the new that, one is, I don't think he should have been criticized criticizing Netanyahu right when they're facing this terrorist attack. It's like that's your criticism of him <laughs> that he said something bad about Bibi Netanyahu anyway. So that's her go-to move. But um, you know, hindsight's 2020 20, and who knows if it would have worked, but you could have at least tried to make a case against him based on the things that just like normie Americans find to be terrible and abhorrent and like unjustifiable about his presidency. Yeah,
0: but look, that's the thing. We're going to see with this case because again, if the court There's plenty of arguments there the court could make to say, yeah, you're kicked off the ballot, and we went through a bunch of them here. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if they will ever fully digest that, like, yes, this is actually the popular position. This is the normie American position that if you're a fucking criminal, never mind somebody charged with 91 crimes, never mind somebody who was just found liable of civil fraud in New York and is going to have to pay a fine up to $250 million and lose his business license there, all these things— people look at the normie perspective is this guy's a fucking problem. Yeah. And so if you want to if you want to off him as a result of that. Hey listen. Look, that's the, I'll say this. It's the least bad scenario moving forward.
1: How about we do this if we if we're concerned about the democratic process. Let's do a nationwide ballot initiative. Let's put it to the voters. Have them vote on this discrete question and see how it comes out. Whether they want them on the ballot or not.
0: You got and you got you got <laughs> the Republicans now saying maybe we'll start kicking Joe Biden off the ballot oh. in our states. Oh and, no, yeah. that would be so terrible. Everybody's like, Oh boy, yeah. would no. <laughs> be
1: heartbroken. One one thing I wanted to ask you about though, in that same vein, is because I saw like Cornell West and some other lefties who are basically making the slippery slope argument of oh the next time there's like a rowdy left-wing protests, they're going to be kicking President AOC or whoever after <laughs> off the ballot. So be careful what you wish for. Um, what do you make of that like slippery slope argument that once it's used against Trump, then it is going to be potentially used against some dissident voice of someone we may actually like? So they're going to go after the left no matter what?
0: Yeah. Is point number one. Point mm-hmm. number two is the left hasn't done anything remotely close to January 6th, nor will they. That's point number two. And then the final point is, Look, you have to evaluate based on the evidence in front of you. And my perspective is, even though I think it's a very difficult legal question, my like colloquial understanding, looking looking at the evidence that's presented to me, looking at that provision of the Constitution, I go, you absolutely can look at this and say, yes, yeah, sorry, you can't run. If a New Mexico elected official is not allowed to hold his position because he was just at January 6th, what about the guy who led the charge? What about the guy who was directly involved with the planning? What about the guys who were sending back and forth to each other here is our fraudulent elector plan. Here's our fake elector memo. This will be illegal vote counting if we do it. Well, shh, don't use those words. This email will maybe become public at some point. When you go through all the specifics, <laughs> it's very clear. He, not only did he want it to happen, he was the ringleader in many respects. Of he course. gave a speech right before saying march to the capital, got to be strong, got to take your country back with strength. I hope Mike Pence does the right thing. I hope he does the right thing. And then when he didn't, quote, do the right thing and the crowd was chanting hang Mike Pence, there was reporting that he was like, well, maybe he deserves it. He deserves it cuz he didn't do the right thing by overturning the will of the people and doing a full authoritarian takeover, a coup in this country. Yeah. So I look at all the facts and it's like look, You can have those conversations about like, well, what about this scenario? What about that scenario? What if we extrapolate it? What if we switch the positions, et cetera? All those, it's fair from an intellectual perspective, it's fair to do. But the most important thing from a legal perspective is you have to deal with the law and the facts of the case directly in front of you. And if you do that in this instance, there absolutely is a strong argument to say, sorry, he's off the ballot. He's not going to run again. Whether or not that position is going to win out is a separate conversation, because, again, it is an overwhelmingly conservative Supreme Court. They might be scared, like you say, of the consequences of invoking themselves directly. But look, in the past, they did it uh, in the 2000 election, but it was actually stealing We're not
1: afraid of stealing an election and making history and whatever in in 2000. Uh, I'll just say, go ahead.
0: I'm sorry. Just final point is if Trump is removed, then the Republicans are going to win the election. I'm serious. If Trump is removed, you're either going to get Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, get, yeah. and then they will def. And mark my words, they will definitely beat Joe Biden. Definitely.
1: So that is maybe a pre- pretty powerful incentive for the Supreme Court. I'll just, I just one thing on the slippery slope thing. I do get kind of frustrated with these arguments because they always result in like pretending like people can't, don't have a brain, and can never see the difference between X and Y event. Like anyone who was there alive on January 6th watching the media coverage knew, and even Republicans knew on that day, now they're sounding a different tone, but they knew on the day, like, this is different. This is really bad. This is something we have not seen before in our lifetimes. And um, so if you're just always going to resort to the slippery slope argument of like, oh, well, it's being used in an appropriate way now, but maybe it'll be used in an inappropriate way in the future. It's like, that's all going to be the case for like literally anything. Everything. And then when we cross that bridge,
0: by the way, what I'll say is, hey, this actually doesn't apply. This here. doesn't apply. And here's why. And it here's does here. It doesn't here. And
1: here's the test and whatever. So anyway, well,
0: I would ask him, is there any what would the facts have to be on the ground for you to say this is fair vis-a-vis going after Trump? Would he have to walk in to the Capitol holding a machine gun and start shooting at Chuck Schumer? Right. Like what would have had to happen? What are the facts on the ground where you would say, oh, you know, I'm a little too far. Maybe a little bit too far. Because I got news for you, no matter how extreme he went, he would still be leading in the Republican primary. And for you to say,
1: oh, we should kick him out because of this, they'd be like, oh, undemocratic. But what about democracy? And look, again, then your beef is with the Constitution, right? really, Mm -hmm. not with the application of what is in the Constitution currently, but— they don't that feels too uncomfortable and that is a very non-normy um argument to make that like oh this part of the constitution where we're banning people committed insurrection from holding office like actually i think insurrectionists should be able to hold office it's not really a popular position the
0: final point i'll make in response is that they'll be like well but this wasn't really an insurrection or since it had like no chance of working therefore it shouldn't count as an insurrection i just think both those arguments are bad because even if it didn't have a good chance of working, even if it's a bunch of fucking idiots, the intent is what mattered, That's and their right. intent was super duper clear. Yeah, that part is not debatable.
1: Yeah, like if you tried to commit a murder but you did it with like you know a, like a letter opener and you screwed it all up, the fact that you tried okay. to commit it, I didn't actually murder, I them. didn't actually do I didn't it, actually so, I didn't so do a, no, no, no right? Let me off, bro. You, you still try to commit murder, so it's still a problem
0: exactly all
1: right right, let's go ahead and get to tim alberta as i said author of the new book the kingdom the power and the glory here he is tim alberta great to see you again
2: great to see you crystal and kyle it's nice to meet you um and uh boy uh, I gotta say, this is this is a better looking couple than on the Breaking Point set. You just you <laughs> don't tell don't them right. tell I <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: don't tell don't tell him I said that. But <laughs> this is this this is this is the right setup. Uh, it's good to see you guys and uh, early Merry Christmas to you both.
1: Thank you. And Thank you, to you. You too. Um, so let's start with just the basics of why you wanted to tell this story, which is sort of a mix of personal and political, and tracks a really important current in America. America and political and religious life. Why did you want to tell this story right at this moment?
2: Yeah, so, you know, I'm a pastor's kid. I grew up in the evangelical church, physically, literally grew up in the church. My mom was on the staff as well. Um, I, you know, like my, my free moments as a kid, as an adolescent, as a teenager, were spent at at church and um, I even worked at the church as a janitor uh, for a period of time when I was um, living at home going to community college so like the church is in my DNA and it's my tribe it's my community and I think you know with as with anyone who becomes uncomfortable or disillusioned to a degree with their tribe with their community it's really hard to talk about it and you you try to Suppress those feelings, and you try to just ignore them, and maybe kind of hope it goes away. And I did Mm -hmm. that for a long time with with the church. And let me be clear: you know, I I never had this sort of crisis of faith. In fact, um, even as I sort of got into my college years and began to really interrogate my beliefs in and and my relationship with Jesus, it actually grew stronger. And so I've never I never had this like. This moment of despair over, you know, is this really true what I believe? But uh, even as my faith in, in Christ was growing stronger, my my confidence in the church was really diminishing. And mm. I I really tried to ignore that for, for a long time. Because, you know, it's just it's it's not easy to to confront those things with family and with with your faith community and ultimately um i kind of reached a breaking point that was not of my own making and and it you know it happened to be um uh tied to the death of my father and sort of things uh just circumstances converged in a really sort of tragic way, but also in a way that opened my eyes to to the real depth of the problem here and, and prompted me to, to want to do something about it.
1: Tim, Tim, if you wouldn't mind, share share that story about, um, you know, you've just lost your father, who obviously was extraordinarily important to you um, and extraordinarily important part of your life. You're devastated. And you're there with your faith community that you grew up with. Talk about what transpired there that sort of served as that breaking point.
2: Yeah, so I I had had an uh, incredible, loving, close, respectful relationship with my dad, Uh, and we 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 started to diverge politically, uh, certainly in, in the Trump era, and and probably dating back even a little further. Just and not even like as an ideological matter, but as kind of a behavioral, attitudinal question of like you know as Christians, what is the what is the proper approach to politics, and and the proper perspective, and so we would sort of butt heads over some of that, but it was always loving, always respectful. He was he was a very very conservative man, and uh, he was a lifelong uh, Republican, full spectrum Republican, and, and much of that was animated by his very sin- deeply held and sincerely held convictions o- about abortion, and and, um, and was very much invested in the pro life cause. And his church was, uh, I, I think, uh, that he led for more than 25 years, the church I grew up in, in Michigan. It was, um, I think, a an image of that. I mean, they, he, built this church basically from the ground up and it became a very large church. And it was infused with a sort of, not just a theological conservatism, a a reformed theological conservatism, but a cultural and political conservatism. And it became difficult to separate those things at a certain point. And I knew that. And it was part of why I became a little bit uncomfortable with the church uh, as I got older. Well, suddenly my dad dies in the summer of 2019 and I go home for the funeral, and it just so happens that my dad died right when my first book, American Carnage, had come out, and I was pretty critical of Donald Trump in that book, and uh, and I was in the crosshairs of right-wing media at the time because of the book being uh, in the news so much. And so when I came home to Michigan for the funeral, uh, in addition to some of the wonderful people at the church who were hugging me and crying with me and mourning with me, um, there were some people who, confronted me at the funeral and uh, who kind of got in my face, actually, and who like really wanted to have it out right then and there about Trump and about politics and about what Rush Limbaugh had been saying about me on his show and all this kind of stuff. And it was just, you know, it was surreal, obviously, and it was shocking. But uh, and, and, and you know, Blood boiling, if I'm being honest. Uh, but I think it was also really clarifying in a way that helped me to understand, as I said earlier, like the depth of the problem here and and um and it, it, and I could no longer crystal I could no longer treat it as some abstract crisis. Uh, mm. it, it was now it was now very close to home. It was very concrete and and almost felt threatening in a way. That it hadn't before, I guess, because really, I'm looking at it thinking, if they can treat me this way, you know, the pastor's son, someone they've known since, yeah, I was five years old at this church. um, They know who I am. They know what I believe. If they can treat me this way, then how are they treating the outside world? How are they treating people who uh, Mm -hmm. they're supposed, you know, their neighbors, uh, who, who they're supposed to be loving? And so that that really bothered me the most and, and really got me thinking that I should I should try to do something to to address it.
0: So that's that's an incredible story. Um what would you say your reaction was to the evangelical Christian right fully embracing Trump and Trumpism? Do you view it as like a a, contra- a contradiction to their stated beliefs, or is it just like, you know, a logical consequence of the roots of evangelical Christianity?
2: Well, I think you you examine the arc of the relationship and 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 look at its evolution to try to make sense of of you know the why it happened in the first place and then what it's become now. You know, it's 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 easy to forget, but if you go back to 2015 when Trump launched his campaign. Um, I was covering it as closely as anyone and specifically covering the uh the nexus of the conservative movement and the evangelical movement in its attempts to coalesce around one of the republican candidates in 2015 into 2016. And Trump was a punchline for the evangelical community. I mean, all of the almost all of the major evangelical influencers were supporting Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio. A couple of them were supporting Jeb Bush. There were, there were a few supporting John Kasich. Like nobody was really supporting Donald Trump with, with one or two exceptions, like Robert Jeffress from the you know the big megachurch in Dallas, First Baptist. He was supporting Trump, but there were very few others. Um, Jerry Falwell Jr. eventually came on board right before the Iowa caucuses. And, and then Trump sort of gained some steam, obviously, as it became clear that he was going to be the nominee. But even then in the summer of 2016, as he had locked up the nomination, he still had a lot of work to do to bring reluctant evangelicals on board. He in fact had to, you know, in in addition to putting Mike Pence on the ticket and releasing the list of Supreme Court nominees who would be pro-life, he actually convened this big meeting in New York City with five or 600 evangelical leaders. And I was there at the meeting and I was talking to all these people and, they, and most of them were still deeply skeptical of Trump. And I think what ultimately got them across the finish line and and, and got them to, to vote for, for him in, in November of 16 was this idea of a transactional relationship that, look, we don't trust this guy. He's not one of us. We don't approve of his behavior and his rhetoric and his lifestyle. But, you know, the alternative is Hillary Clinton and the alternative is three pro-choice Supreme Court nominees. And what if... We just hold our nose and give this guy our votes in exchange for, uh, you know, conservative policies and 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 pro life policies and 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 maybe just maybe we can survive this terrible binary choice. That was really the mindset of much of the evangelical movement in 2016. But Kyle, you fast forward eight years and you think about where we are now, and we're living in a completely different world. I mean, it's to you can't overstate how dramatically. Uh, the, the 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 mindset has shifted and how that relationship, which was once this uneasy alliance, has now become this this cult-like attachment to Trump. And I think in some sense, it's shocking, and in another sense, it's like not surprising at all. Because if you think about, you know, your question was like if you really examine the the, the foundations and the, the roots of the evangelical movement in America to understand how a lot of these people view politics, how they view culture, I think at the center of it, there's a certain moral panic that's been there for 50 years at least, dating Mm. back to Roe v. Wade, dating back to taking prayer out of public schools, dating back to the pornography culture exploding and the drug culture running rampant, and this idea that Christianity was in the crosshairs and that the secular leftists were coming for the church and that it was just a matter of time and that Christians better be ready for that day. Well, they think that it's here now. I mean, a lot of them do. They think that this is like a moment of Armageddon in American life and that the the, the forces of good versus evil are meeting on the political battlefield, and that Trump is their warrior. He's their protector. He's almost this mercenary figure who, sure, he doesn't necessarily believe the things they believe, but that almost makes him stronger. It's almost his superpower. And you just can't overstate how how um, how strange that relationship is, but also how, how strong it makes the bond, because the more crazy hateful things that Trump says and the more criminal legal trouble he gets into uh, the, the 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 stronger he becomes in many ways because again people who have a persecution complex they look at him and they say well see he's being persecuted because they're trying to get to us Trump is just standing in the way, and in fact, that's the very rhetoric that he uses. So sorry, that's a long answer to your question, but I think understanding how this has come full circle now, uh, it, it's its totally fascinating, and, and frankly, its I think it's unprecedented in the sweep of American politics.
0: Why is it that certain issues seem to really gin up the evangelical base, but other issues, which arguably there's just as much biblical textual support for, if not more— don't really seem to energize evangelicals. So in other words, what I'm saying is like, you could just as easily focus on the passages in the Bible that talk about like doing good by the poor. Uh, you could just as easily talk about Jesus's like very clear pacifism and use that for an anti-war message. But that doesn't really gin up the support. I mean, another example is like there's parts of the Bible where they say eating shellfish is an abomination. There's no mass movement of evangelical Christians trying to ban Red Lobster, right? So <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I'm a little not confused. Yet. <laughs> not yet. I'm a little confused as to why, because to me, for, as an outsider what it looks like to me is uh, the church maybe, maybe not started out as something different, but now it's almost become like a religion around Republican politics
2: well look uh let me let me uh just say I think in many in many ways, you just answered your own question because you're you're right um look, can you imagine a presidential candidate getting up on the stump in front of an audience and uh, of of conservative Republican voters and saying, "Blessed are the poor you know bl- <laughs> blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers um the sermon on the mount would not exactly mobilize the masses of voters right and and so your question why is there this selective application of biblical teaching you know i talk about this in the book you know if you are a political professional whether you are a republican or a democrat by the way you recognize that the number one motivator in campaigns is fear Right, fear drives people to the polls. Uh, you know, for for all the hope and change messaging of Barack Obama in 2008, you know, he beat Mitt Romney back in 2012 and 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 secured a second term by making sure that Americans were terrified of Mitt Romney. This you know this this sucking venture capitalist who is going to you know shut down your businesses and and leave you poor and destitute. I mean, fear works in politics, and and the problem, of course in this in a in a religious context and specifically in a christian context is that fear is antithetical to faith fear and faith are are polar opposites if you think about the story of peter jesus's right hand disciple calling out when he sees jesus walking on the water and he says lord if that really is you command me to come out to you and jesus says come and peter starts walking out to him and I, and everybody's like whoa is this actually happening like is peter really walking on the water And then Peter looks around and sees the storm swirling around him on the sea, and he becomes scared, and he starts sinking. And Jesus comes over and grabs his arm and pulls him up out of the water, and he says, you have little faith, why did you doubt? I mean, I share all that to say that fear is, of all the attitudes, of all the reactions that we can have to the world around us, fear for the Christian is the least healthy, the least productive, the least biblical, and yet it is fear that proves to be the most uh, productive when trying to mobilize voters ahead of a campaign. And so here you see uh, in the evangelical setting, someone like a Donald Trump, and not just Trump, I mean, he's kind of perfected it and taken it to new levels, but you see candidates who are willing to go out, and they're not going to traffic in you know, many of Jesus's teachings, if any of Jesus's teachings, because they are not uh, conducive ultimately to getting people riled up and to, you know, uh, earning time on Fox News and to, you know, like if you think about the fundraising mechanisms, when's the last time you saw from either party a fundraising email that went out, like appealing to the better angels of our nature and like, it just doesn't work, right? And I would add, just as an aside, that while I don't think that there is a, um, I don't think that there is necessarily a both sides element to this in terms of it being apples to apples. I think that you see the progressive church and its intersection with democratic politics do some of the same things in terms of cherry picking scripture and avoiding things that are not convenient for their tribe politically, but attaching themselves to other issues that they realize are going to play better with their base. And this is why in the book. I'm really issuing a call for anyone who considers themselves to be a Christian to take a big step back from politics and assess this in a really clear-eyed and holistic way and think about if their identity is in fact truly rooted in Christ, then their political tribal identities have to be secondary and they should be Proceeding uh, with their political engagements in accordance to that ordering of their identities, and and unfortunately, you know, that's that's not a message that sells very well in today's political climate.
1: Tim, you mentioned that Jerry Falwell Jr., who has now had a stunning fall um, from Grace, uh, that he was one of the early backers of Donald Trump. And you go into some of the history of, you know, the founding of Liberty University with Jerry Falwell Sr., and you almost see the similar trajectory of how you know, the school compromises on what is supposed to be its core mission to embrace Jerry Falwell Jr. himself, who they realize is not perhaps the best model Christian, but he's good at getting access and he's good at bringing lots of money and lots of attention, lots of students into the university. It almost feels like a parallel track with the rise of Trump.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is, Crystal. I mean, you're you're spot on. And in fact, um, if you study, I mean, I mentioned earlier the, the kind of the last 50 years of the evangelical movement and, and what we've seen in terms of, you know, reaping what you sow, the, the seeds that were planted uh, by the moral majority uh, now really being harvested in 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 some of the most destructive ways possible by the modern religious right. I think understanding how the story of Jerry Falwell Sr. and Liberty University and then you know, bringing it all the way to present day with Jerry Falwell Jr. and his fall from grace. It's remarkable, the symmetry of it. And and it's remarkable just, like, the, I think the script writers would almost throw it out of the writing room and say, like, no, this is too on the nose. I mean, think about this. This is, like, one of my, this is one of the really, truly astonishing uh, anecdotes just for its, its symmetry. So in 1976, Jerry Falwell Sr., He's already built his mega church in Lynchburg, Virginia, Thomas Road, into this behemoth. And he's broadcast he's he's kind of cornered the market on televangelism. and he's using uh, his church to broadcast into the living rooms of millions of Americans. and he's raising tons of money. And then he recognizes that he really needs a parallel uh, institution as like a cultural stronghold. So he builds this 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 small Baptist college into he renames it Liberty University. And they change the colors to red, white, and blue, and it becomes this sort of God and country, uh, uh, in, you know, sort of rock star institution that starts touring the country and and uh, working with Republican causes and raising a lot of money. And the school gets bigger and bigger and becomes known as this, um, you know, really this 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 fortress of kind of conservative evangelical culture warrior standing standing and and what's so interesting is that as Falwell senior is in the middle of this building program which of course then he adds as the third cog in his machine the moral majority as Falwell senior is in the middle of building out this empire he picks on Jimmy Carter as Kyle mentioned earlier Jimmy Carter in 1976 of all people hmm. and and the, and the galvanizing moment for why Falwell Sr. singles out Jimmy Carter, if you remember this, Jimmy Carter had the temerity to give an interview to Playboy magazine in 1976 <laughs> when he was running for president, and, and, he, and he admitted in that interview that he suffered with uh, or th- that he dealt with lust in his heart, and um, and Falwell Sr. just pounced on this and said. We cannot like allow someone who is seeking the nation's highest office to exhibit this level of moral depravity, like giving an interview to a, to to this smut magazine. Like how dare he? Right. That became oh like a real rallying cry for Falwell Sr. and for the Moral Majority. So that's in 1976, right? Fast forward 50 years, 2016. I told you earlier about this meeting in New York where Donald Trump in the summer of 16 was trying to seal the deal and bring on board a lot of these reluctant evangelicals. Well, who was like the keynote speaker for him? Who was the the big name that Trump brought in? It was Jerry Falwell Jr. And Falwell Jr. gets up on stage. He vouches for Trump's character. He compares him to King David and other biblical heroes who are like flawed men, but that God is gonna use them for his purposes, right? And then the two of them, they go back to Trump Tower after that event for a celebration, and as they celebrate, Falwell Jr. and his wife they gather with Trump in his office and they take a picture, the three of them with their thumbs up. And what is hanging on the wall right behind them? A framed Playboy magazine with Donald Trump on the cover. Uh, right.
1: It's too perfect. So, like,
2: it's too <laughs> like think about that. Think about that fifty-year trajectory, right? And and how it just speaks volumes about the sort of moral relativism and this idea that, well, did they believe it then or do they just not believe it now? Was it always hypocritical? Was it always opportunistic? Or was there a genuine shift in priorities? Um, And I think that those are complicated questions to try and unwind. But really what I try to emphasize in the book is that when you look at liberty, and you understand how Jerry Falwell Sr. and some of these other leaders were preying on the insecurities, preying on the fears, preying on the anxieties of the kind of everyday, uh, unwitting evangelical voter around America. They built that into a business model. And now what you see today is Trump tapping into that with allies like Ralph Reed and Robert Jefferson and, and others, where they have... They have um, perfected and gotten it down to a science this this uh this model of using fear using insecurity using grievance and resentment to drive the political behaviors of an entire community who are taught by scripture to do the exact opposite and and uh, and, and sadly i think there's just this disparity this fundamental disparity in uh the the numbers of these folks who take their guidance from scripture and from their pastor on a Sunday mornings versus how many of them take their cues from Fox News and from social media and from Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, I mean, the connecting tissue in both of those stories, the Jimmy Carter one and then the Trump one, from my perspective is, in both instances, they're trying to serve Republican politicians. And so, uh, like, let's talk a little bit about the founding of the Evangelical Church, because I'm curious how we can take an organization uh, loosely however you want to consider it how you can take this kind of an organization and turn it into something else so i'm reading from a politico piece here in 2014 they say the religious right who like to call themselves the moral majority at the time actually organized around fighting to protect christian schools from being desegregated it wasn't roe v wade that woke the sleeping dragon of the evangelical vote so i look at that and then of course we remember during the bush era there was this big push on you know we need a constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage is it possible to like um take uh, a group like this and reform them in a sense that you get like more true to Jesus's New Testament message.
2: Boy, I'm glad you asked because yeah, I believe so. And if I didn't, then I don't think I would have bothered writing the book because here's the thing. Um, What we're seeing today is not all that unusual. And I guess what I mean by that, Kyle, is if you think through the centuries, I mean, you know, J- Jesus dies two thousand years ago, and the church springs up in uh, the in the in the most hostile territory imaginable. The you know under Roman occupation, and uh, the, the early church is persecuted and. The message of Jesus and his followers, that they, they are, it is distinctly countercultural. They are never a maturity, politically, socially, culturally, they have no power, they have no military force. And yet the church grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows over the next couple of centuries. And then Constantine, in, in the fourth century, he decides to wield Christianity as, you know, and, 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 and infuse the power of the Christian message with the power of the state. And ever since then, for the last you know 1,600 years, give or take, we we Christians have struggled with this with this fundamental problem of, you know, is Christianity meant to be a dominant political force? Uh, is Christianity meant to govern a nation, govern a people, uh, or is Christianity meant to be uh, an inherently? countercultural movement that operates at the margins of society and that appeals to people explicitly because it is not a political movement it is it, you know in other words the the jews had been waiting for hundreds of years for their prophesied messiah to appear and they all thought they were all convinced that that messiah was going to be a military giant a a political ruler, someone who would slay all the Romans and free them from bondage and create a a new Jerusalem and that they would live happily ever after. And along comes this vagrant preacher from the ghettos of Nazareth talking about how he has a kingdom that is not of this world. And that if you wanna belong to that kingdom, you have to turn your back on this world and that you can't find your identity in the kingdoms and the nations uh, and the tribes of this fleeting existence on earth, that you have to set your eyes on the things you cannot see. And everybody's looking at this guy thinking, what the heck is he talking about, right? And yet somehow, some way that movement gains steam and and it winds up changing the world. But this struggle has, has played out through the centuries. And what you see happening in America today, I believe, is that you have so many Christians in this country. If I can just speak really bluntly, you know, this is not a problem in Canada. This is not a problem in Europe. This is not a problem in Asia or in Africa. This is an American problem because American Christians are coddled. American Christians are complacent. American Christians have been so blessed and have been so comforted, and have come to uh, take for granted the security they have in this country, that when someone says something mean about them on social media, they feel like they're being persecuted, and they start to panic, when in fact, what you see around the world today is that in the countries and in the cultures where there is real persecution, that is well documented, where Christians are suffering and dying, in some cases, for their for their allegiance to Jesus and for their Christian faith being professed these places the christian witness is incredibly healthy it's incredibly strong there's no political movement there's no attachment to national idolatry so what you see in the american context is i think uh in i think a big part of the reason that we're living through this crisis in the church is because we struggle so mightily to compartmentalize our national identity and our political tribal identity from our religious identity. And that's just not a problem that people have faced in a lot of other cultures in our modern era. But because of our superpower imperial American status, it is a unique struggle for us. But I do believe, and 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 I think the irony in my statement in saying this, I do believe that as Christianity enters a minority status as as America continues to secularize and as the church becomes less and less of a dominant cultural force, I actually think that that is probably the healthiest thing that can happen to the body of believers. I think that embracing that minority status, embracing the idea of existing on the margins once again, embracing this challenge to, to, to know our own weakness and to find our strength only in Christ and not in political rulers, I think that that's the best thing that could happen to us in many ways.
1: So, Tim, how much, though, of the unique American context also has to do with race? As Kyle was talking about how a lot of energy came out in the evangelical right in terms of opposition to school desegregation. The Southern Baptist Convention was literally founded to try to safeguard slavery. This is still a very segregated uh, space, overwhelmingly white space. And so when you talk about a moral panic, how much of it is also a racial panic? As there's this sense that, oh, you know, the the white man is under threat and white people are under threat and it's becoming a nation that's, you know, majority minority. How much of that plays into what is unfolding and the support for Trump, who has made no secret of his xenophobic tendencies at best?
2: Yeah, look, it's a very real part of it. There's no question. And it, and it becomes difficult to divorce the 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 racial demographic xenophobic panic from the kind of larger cultural panic. I don't think that they're one and the same, but I think that they certainly overlap a great deal. And I wasn't trying to um sorry, I got on my soapbox a minute ago. I wasn't trying to dodge that part of Kyle's question because I think that it's it's a it's a big part of this, and obviously, I spend. If anybody reads the book, I spend a lot of time on this in the book, unpacking the history of uh, of racial segregation, the the history of um, uh, uh, of what happened at Bob Jones, and how that informed uh, some of the some of the early investment, early interest in the Moral Majority, and then even to present day. You know, if you look at the the case of of Russell Moore, for example, the exiled former Southern Baptist leader. A lot of people want to think that Russell Moore's great apostasy that made him so many enemies inside the SBC was his denouncing Trump or even his advocacy for sexual abuse victims. Now, both of those both of those things loomed large for for Russell and and contributed to his exit. But I think that arguably the biggest piece of of uh, the the crusade. That wound up forming against him, and this campaign of like psychological warfare, where he was really just treated abhorrently by his brothers in so-called brothers inside the SBC, was his advocacy for racial reconciliation and for for really for a reckoning on the question of race inside the SBC, which, as you point out, Crystal, was formed as an explicitly uh, pro-slavery entity. Uh, back in the 19th century. Uh, a lot of people don't know this history, but the SBC was formed because the mainline Baptist tradition was increasingly vocal about the abolitionist cause. And so the SBC was born as an offshoot movement to, to try to preserve the institution of slavery. And that question of race has loomed uh, as as a... <laughs> like this, this this, storm cloud over the mm. SBC for the past 100 and whatever, 60, 70 years. And, you know, what you see today with the disaffiliation, the dismembership of many SBC churches over the last few years, much of that does owe to some just kind of fundamental cultural clashes with race uh, being, being at the center of it. Because you have uh, many SBC churches that are that are thoroughly integrated and multiracial, and and some of them are led by black pastors. Where, you know, black pastors, black parishioners at these churches who are they're conservative on 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 theological issues, on many cultural issues and political issues, but. And so you'll see them nodding their head along uh, when there's a discussion about abortion or or a a discussion about sexuality and sexual ethics. Like, you know, there's large, uh, you know, widespread agreement. And then suddenly there's somebody ranting and raving about critical race theory or about Black Lives Matter or some of these other, you know, identity politics issues. And and that's where, for a lot of these multiracial congregations, there's been this r- deep fracture because mm-hmm. a, lot of, uh, a lot of non-white congregants, uh, particularly black folks, but also uh, other non-white congregants, they take a big step back from that and say, whoa, 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 let's, let's, like Let's hold our horses here. What are we talking about exactly? And it's notable, I point this out very early in the book as I'm kind of giving a a rough definition of who the evangelicals are that I'm writing about. You know, what we've seen in the social science uh, data for many years is that, I don't think this is coincidental, black Christians are significantly less likely to identify as evangelical. They're far likelier to identify as born again, but less likely to identify as evangelical. And I think that's because, Crystal, there's been such a such a, a a profound cultural, political, and even racial attachment of that term evangelical to the modern uh the, the modern sort of social uh, ecosystem in, in which uh many of these issues do come back in some way shape or form do come back to racial identity and that continues to be one of the great uh one of the great fault lines inside the church and what you're actually beginning to see, I talk about this a little bit in the book, not much, but it's like a whole separate book. There was really a big movement uh, starting, you know, roughly 15, 20 years ago where, where there was a lot of energy, a lot of momentum behind this idea of building up the multiracial church. And mm. a lot of black pastors were uh, were really at the forefront of, of trying to, okay, Let's take the black church out of its silo. Let's push the white evangelical church out of its comfort zone. And let's, if we are in agreement on the deep theological and doctrinal issues, let's let's build multiracial churches. Um and that movement has really begun to sputter and even, I think, regress in the last few years. And when you talk to people who have been involved with that movement, particularly black believers, they will tell you that like, They just don't, they're not sure that they have that that they have the stomach for it anymore. That it's become Mm -hmm. they want to just go, they want their Sunday mornings to be about worship and praise and prayer, and not these not fighting this sort of identity politics battles inside of their congregations. That in and of itself, I think, is a really telling sign and and obviously a really worrisome sign to someone like me.
1: Mm.
0: So how do you reconcile? The the contradictions in Christianity, because on on issues like war, I'd say the Bible is, in most places arguing for peace and pacifism, certainly if you go by Jesus, but there are, you know, moments people point out, you know, was he had a line of like, I come I come bringing the sword or something to that effect. There's some contradictions on war, immigration, the Bible <laughs> is generally very pro-sojourner as they call them in there, you know, you should treat sojourners like they're your family, etc. Uh, but I'm sure you could find stuff that's like tribalism, like uh, even abortion, you know, there's uh, passages people point to about how I knew, you know, I knew you before you were in the womb or something to mm-hmm. that effect, but there's also the the passage about uh the bitter water that you give it to you, you know your wife if she cheats on you and the whatever we don't need to get into the specifics <laughs> question is how do you reconcile the contradictions in christianity as a christian because it seems like the only thing that jesus is super consistent on is is economics where he's like super socialisty
2: well um i might so i might have to ask you to be more when you say the contradictions within Christianity, I, I thought what you were going to say is how do you reconcile the contradictions of the teachings of of Christ with the actions of Christ's followers? That's that's um, that's fertile territory for us to, to to dig into. But on the questions of the contradictions within Christianity, or 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 your argument that Christ is really only consistent on economics, I mean, I, I would I would disagree uh, vehemently with that because I, I think in fact. Uh, even you mentioned Jesus saying that you know he will bring the sword. In what he's describing when he says that he will be bringing the sword, it is to say that the that um, people will be fundamentally divided into two camps: those who follow Jesus and those who do not. That there is no in between. That you cannot be lukewarm on the question of whether this historical figure was in fact the son of god whether he was in fact risen from the dead after three days and seen by many people after his resurrection that question of do you follow me yes or no he's saying that that will cleave fam that 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 will divide families it will divide friendships it will divide neighbors and that's the sword he's talking about it's it's not in a violent connotation whatsoever Um, i think that the teachings of jesus throughout the gospels, and then in the epistles of Paul and Peter and others throughout the the balance of the New Testament are remarkably consistent in their teachings on everything from the question of like, how are we to treat the people around us, right? Not just our our family and our friends and our neighbors, we are to love, love them, of course, but we are to pray for our enemies and and for those who persecute us and we are to love them and show them an abounding grace and and mercy and goodness in fact Part of what makes the persecution complex in the American evangelical movement so vexing is the fact that when you look at the origins of the early church, you look at Christians being crucified and burned at the stake and fed to lions and and living under real persecution and brutal oppression from the governing entities of the age at the, uh, in the first through you know fourth centuries. What you see. Is these early Christians responding in ways that make no sense whatsoever? They are penning letters talking about how they're praying for their captors, how they're praying for the people who are brutalizing them. And th- those are all, those actions are all a direct result of the teachings of Christ, which consistently preach time and time again to turn the other cheek, to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, and warnings against becoming. Beholden to the nations and the kingdoms of this world. Uh, in 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 several of the gospels, we're introduced to Jesus in in many ways. In 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 uh, in a profound personal sense, we're introduced to Jesus during his temptation in the wilderness, when Satan takes him up to the top of a high mountain and, in a moment of time, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and he says, "You, I will give you." Power over all these kingdoms and all of the glory that comes with it if you will just bow a knee to me and worship me. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You have fixed your eyes on the things of this world and, and not on the things of man. That, and he says to him uh, even more explicitly, he says, only the Lord shall thou worship. And what I think is important, the reason I'm sharing that is that temptation Jesus faced in the wilderness two thousand years ago is exactly the temptation that Christians face today. It is this very basic idea of, I will give you, I will give you power, I will give you influence, I will give you fame, I will give you wealth, I will give you all the glory of this world if you will just bow down to this false god of America, this false god of, of political power, this false god of of, you know, ruling the country and imposing your Judeo-Christian value set on the unbelievers and owning the libs, right? Mm -hmm. If you, you know, you can have all of those things if you forget about the kingdom of heaven. And it's binary, right? That is the the consistent teaching of Christ. He talks throughout the gospels about this idea of a kingdom of heaven. And he doesn't talk about it like it's some abstract entity, this make-believe, feel-good, fuzzy, warm place no he talks about it like it's a real place a physical community a a nation if you will and he says if you want to have that kingdom if you want to be a part of that kingdom and find your citizenship in that kingdom then you have to leave everything else behind you have to be willing to die to this world in order that you might live with me in that kingdom in the next and that is not ambiguous there's nothing equivocal about it and so sorry that I'm I'm preaching at you here, Kyle, but I, I, I reject the notion that there are inconsistencies in the Christian message. I think what Jesus teaches is very straightforward. I think the great inconsistency is the application in the modern culture and the unwillingness of so many followers of Jesus, professing followers of Jesus, to actually live the way that he taught us to live.
0: I mean, certainly you'd agree, though, that there there are contradictions between the Old and New Testament, and when those come up, of course you abide by the New Testament, uh, you know, ideas.
2: Yeah, so I'm glad you asked that. So, yes, I think what's important to recognize is that there was an old covenant, uh, and and the old covenant. I don't want to. I don't know how uh, deep theologically we want to go. You guys tell me. I'm, I'm. But I think it's a great conversation to have. So when you think about the Ten Commandments, when you think about the laws of Moses, when you think about the old covenant that was the relationship between God and Israel and the Jewish people, right? When Jesus comes along, he says that he represents the new covenant, and which which is fascinating because if you think about the jewish people who for hundreds and hundreds of years they had lived by a very specific set of codes the, you know they worshiped uh, uh, the sabbath was saturday and they didn't eat pork or other foods they they did not interact or even talk with or even look at people of different ethnic tribal identities right there was the, there were these strict rules by which they had to live their lives and all of a sudden after this vagrant preacher is hung on a tree by the Roman Empire, and then he is allegedly spotted three days later by scores of people who say that they've seen him rise and that his tomb is empty, all of a sudden, these people who had been living this way for hundreds and hundreds of years, everything changes instantly. They start worshiping on Sunday instead of Saturday. They start eating pork and all these other foods that were banned. They start referring to these uh, these enemy ethnic tribes in their region, people who they've been at war with forever, they start referring to them as brothers and sisters and, and hugging them and, and eating with them and worshiping with them. So something changed, right? And, and the thing that changed is that when Christ said that he is the new covenant and that the old covenant is made obsolete now, in the words of Paul, the apostle Paul, who, as he describes it, Paul, talks about how he was the 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 Hebrew of all Hebrews that he was uh circumcised in accordance with the law that he lived his life as a zealous follower of Jewish tradition so much so that he went around persecuting and rounding up the followers of Jesus and then of course he has this experience this conversion on the road to Damascus and his name is changed from Saul to Paul and he becomes the you know the second most important figure arguably in the history of Christianity. And he goes around writing these letters to everyone explaining how the old covenant under the the, the the law of Moses, how it is now made obsolete because there's no longer a need for any sacrifices. There's no longer a need for blood to be shed in order to reconcile people to God over their sins. The perfect lamb has been sacrificed in order that the brokenness and the sinfulness of all humanity may now be atoned for. In, o- in other words, Jesus is the sacrifice, and because he has been sacrificed, he is the new covenant. His blood has redeemed all of mankind. And so we no longer need to live by the 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 um the Mosaic law. We no longer need to live under the old covenant because we are now, not just us Jews, but also us Gentiles, we are now one giant multi-ethnic big messy family all under this new covenant of Christ and his teachings. And I think understanding that distinction is is important to reconciling what you read in the Old Testament versus Hmm. what you read in the New Testament.
1: Well, and one thing you point out in the book is that politicians, on the right, like to use the Old Testament a lot more than they quote from the New Testament, which is kind of uh, kind of telling in and of itself. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about is actually you described the uh, initial affinity, at least, of the evangelical community with Trump as basically transactional. And I have to tell you, I'm sort of sympathetic to that view. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pro-choice, so I don't share their view on abortion. But I know many people who genuinely believe like this is murder. It's a moral atrocity. And so if I ha- believed that and I was like, well, the guy who's gonna uh, get this banned and deal with this moral atrocity has a messy personal sex life, I think I might also look at that and be like, I'm willing to make that trade off. Um, what do you say to that? Because it seems to be hard to di- divorce the religious from the political because, you know, even the things that you were just talking about and, and the view of Christianity, I mean, these things are sort mm-hmm. of inherently political questions.
2: I mean, it, yeah. It's, so it's a fascinating thing to try to unpack because I, what I've what I've said is that abortion is almost a gateway drug for a lot of evangelicals who uh, who who they are deeply deeply invested in the issue of abortion because they don't view it as a political issue; they view it as an ethical issue, as a moral issue as a spiritual issue fundamentally that mm-hmm. that life is made in the image of god and therefore must be protected and politics is just a vehicle to to pursue that end of protecting innocent human life the problem of course becomes that you know when you when you begin to view politics as vehicle to achieving this one end and you think about well the red team is good and the blue team is bad or potentially even you know the red team is good and the blue team is evil because they are on opposite sides of this you know profound ethical moral issue well suddenly you start to you know when i say that it's a gateway drug suddenly you start to become like a reactionary partisan on all of these other things that are not moral and ethical issues you know tax mm-hmm. rates and 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 uh, all of these other um uh, all you know wars and and uh, I mean I would argue you, those you start are to
1: moral and ethical issues. Yeah. I just think the Christian it's, teaching ex- goes in the opposite direction yeah, of what exactly. they're worried by the Republican party. Typically.
2: Exactly, well, and, and refugees and immigrants and poverty programs, right? Like this is where the inconsistency and, and and when I'm calling for a more holistic approach to politics, this is exactly the point, right? Is that if you are a a dutiful you know disciple and if you are trying to uh, honestly Apply the teachings of Christ across the political spectrum, then you're gonna, you can't be a member of one party or the other. You can't be beholden to one tribe or the other. It's impossible. I think the question of abortion is a really confounding one because it is so central to the political identity of many evangelicals who, as you point out, Crystal, and I point this out repeatedly in the book, I know people who have spent decades giving every spare dollar and every spare moment of their lives to the pro-life cause, right? These are people who are incredibly sincere and earnest in their beliefs. And I think that we should Treat their political behaviors differently than we treat the political behaviors of people who are essentially using abortion as a means to an end politically, mm-hmm. who are trying to weaponize the issue to to galvanize people uh, because really there is a whole set of sort of sub issues that they're much more invested in advancing as a as a partisan agenda. What becomes what becomes difficult, and, and to the point that you're raising about Trump and the transactional relationship is, well, look, if you believe to your core that life is made in the image of God and that this is the most important issue to you politically, then you are going to uh, be prone to holding your nose potentially and voting for someone who you think might violate your beliefs on other issues. But if you are prioritizing abortion as more important than the others, then sure, you're going to enter into this transactional relationship with Donald Trump. Um, what 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 is now interesting is that this is the first, the first post-Roe v. Wade presidential election in this country, and you're gonna have millions of these single-issue voters, people who held their nose for Trump once, or maybe even twice, and voted for him because of the dynamic that you and I have just been describing. They're yeah. now gonna be in uncharted territory in 2024 because the issue is de- effectively defederalized. You can no longer mobilize people with this idea that, well, uh, you know, the Supreme Court is hanging in the balance and therefore abortion law in America is up for grabs and, and we have to vote at the presidential level, even if it means voting for this person who we can't stand otherwise. No, I mean, actually abortion law is now thrown back to the states. And I think that there's a, a really an open question for the fervent, sincere, single-issue, pro-life voter. Okay, now what do they do? do are, are they going to leave the top of the ticket blank? Are they going to vote third party? Are they just going to stay home altogether because they, they can't justify voting for Donald Trump, but they also can't justify voting for Joe Biden because of his pro-choice position? I mean, that, that is a really complex and fascinating question. And let's be clear... If Trump, if Trump loses, if the Republican Party loses any meaningful share of these people, like even two or three percent of those people, like that would probably be enough to keep him from winning mathematically. I mean, he cannot he cannot sustain any meaningful defection of those voters. So I think the the, the question of abortion now moving forward, not just in this next election, but in presidential elections to come, uh, is going to be a wild card in ways uh, that we haven't seen in the recent past. I-
0: I think the goalposts, uh, I mean, this is what I think will happen. I think the goalpost just moves. So, like, it was we need to overturn Roe versus Wade. That's the, you know, the North Star on this issue. And then it became immediately after that, well, we got that. What's next? And then the conversation is a national abortion ban. And some people will say 15 weeks. Some people say six weeks. You know, some people say moment of conception. But I think that they still have that guiding them. And the fact of the matter is they know Republicans more represent that position than Democrats do. And so I think they'll still do the whole thing where they, even if they're 100% sincere on the issue, I think they'll basically hold their nose and suck it up and go pull the lever for Republicans across the board.
1: Well, the other thing, Tim, that is noteworthy to me is, you know, I would say, and I'm interested if you agree with this, but the two most consistently pro-life candidates in the Republican primary were Mike Pence and uh, Tim Scott. Both of them have already dropped out because they were not polling well And, uh, you know, back to this bizarre relationship with Donald Trump. I mean, Mike Pence, he was brought on the ticket to try to make sure evangelicals stay in line, you know, and he was incredibly important to keeping people on board after the Access Hollywood tape, et cetera. And that and putting out the list of the Supreme Court justices. Yet by the end of the term, you have uh, Trump supporters at the Capitol calling for Mike Pence to be hanged. And him, like I said, having to drop out of the Republican primary because he has minimal support. So it seems to me like not only the goalposts moved in terms of what's being pushed for in the issue, but also in terms of the animating issues. And you get into some of this in the book that actually one of the big pivot points within the church and one of the big dividing lines wasn't actually Donald Trump. It was covid shutdowns and it was Black Lives Matter.
2: I'm really glad that you raised this point because I think the, the 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 conversation would be incomplete without addressing the ways in which Trump has changed just at, at a kind of at a at a really basic level changed the the expectations changed the mindset of of many of these evangelical voters and what I mean by that is. You know, Mike Pence and Tim Scott, one of the things that they share in common is that they are evangelical Christians and that they preach a certain restraint, a certain civility, a decency. I mean, Mike Pence was going around giving his stump speech, basically saying, you know, I can achieve all these same conservative policies, but I can also preach you know, uh, loving your neighbor and, and and reconciliation and trying to bring this country back together, right? Tim Scott hitting on a lot of similar notes. And I was in the room with these guys when they would give those speeches and people, it was like, it was crickets, right? Yeah. People, in other words, Trump has, I, I think, I write this in the book and I'm really convinced of this. I think one of the enduring legacies of Trumpism is how he has reconditioned the evangelical world to demand a certain pugilism from their candidates. In other words, it's not enough, the policy outcomes are not enough anymore. Um, you know, y- you have to be a brawler, you have to be bloodthirsty, you have to be belligerent and antagonistic, you have to be willing to wield the sword in ways that someone like Tim Scott or, or, or Mike Pence they're just not willing to and and you know let me let me close if i can on that specific question by by saying this i talked earlier and probably put you guys and your listeners to sleep for a minute by talking about the constantinian age and this challenge of understanding historically this temptation that christians have faced whenever they are in a in a in a place of fear insecurity uh, in a in in any given society or or nation or culture, that they are tempted to turn to the power of the state, that they are tempted to turn to the sword. Right? There is this there is this fundamental binary for Christians. Do you when you are afraid, when you feel threatened, do you turn to the sword, or do you turn to the cross? And what I mean by that. And I'm borrowing from a pastor friend of mine in Arizona who I had a, a really rich conversation with recently on this very subject. When you think about uh, Peter, who I mentioned earlier, Peter is sort of my, my hero uh, in the New Testament outside of Jesus, obviously. Peter is kind of a roughneck and he's kind of a wild child. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when Jesus is arrested, um, Peter grabs his sword and attacks one of the officers and cuts off of his ear. And Jesus rebukes him and he heals the man's ear and he says to Peter, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And what's so interesting is that that same Peter, that same figure who, who reached for his sword when Jesus was being arrested because he was so afraid that that their champion, their Messiah was going to be crucified, right? That same Peter uh, shortly before he himself is executed by the state, uh, he is writing letters to believers uh, around, around the ancient world and telling them that I know that you're being persecuted. I know that you're being martyred. I know that you're gonna be killed for your faith in many cases, but do not be afraid. And in fact, do not reach for the sword. Do not, do not reach for the power of the state do not put your faith in political leaders or in military rulers to try to fight back against your oppressors. In fact, reach for the cross, and 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 in your in your persecution, try to um, try to impress upon your enemies, try to impress upon the people who are persecuting you that the love of Jesus and that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is sufficient for them just like it is sufficient for you. Show them grace, show them mercy, show them love, show them the redeeming power of Jesus. That is the only power that you need. So if I sound like I'm preaching again, it's because I'm a preacher's kid and it's in my genes. But <laughs> there is this there is this fundamental choice that Christians need to make. Do you reach for the sword or do you reach for the cross? I think in the American evangelical church, what you see in, in their attachments to Donald Trump, in their attachment to national political identity and, and tribalism, is is consistently this inclination to reach for the sword because that's what's going to protect us in our moment of insecurity. But the irony is that the thing that the, the thing that we find our our ultimate security in, the thing that makes us strong, the thing that gives us the ultimate peace that surpasses all understanding, is in reaching for the cross. And I hope, if nothing else, that there might be one person out there listening who has gotten this confused a little bit and who's who's lost track of their priorities, who might hear this and think, you know, maybe I, maybe I do need to let go of the sword. Maybe I do need to lower my defenses. Maybe I do need to turn the other cheek and begin to love my enemy in a way that might demonstrate the love of Jesus to those who are desperate for his message out in the world today.
1: Well, Tim, um, I, as I told you, I really enjoyed the book. I'm not a Christian, but I found it really, um, fascinating. I thought it was very thought provoking. I found it very challenging in certain places. I really recommend it to people. And again, it's called the kingdom, the, kingdom, the, the
0: power, power and the glory, and the
1: glory. Um, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Yeah, we really thank appreciate you. it.
0: It was great.
2: Yeah. Thank you guys. And, and thank you for, um, uh, indulging my, uh, my proselytizing of, of your listeners and, uh, I really appreciate the respectful dialogue. You guys are are uh, are, are really uh, generous to have me on, so thank you.
1: Well, I like your version of Jesus a lot better than what I see in the politics yeah. a lot, leave, so not a problem.
0: Leave the <laughs> church of Republican politics and go join
1: what, Christianity. What Tim's like, talking actual, about here. <laughs> uh, yeah, That's much better. <laughs> thank you, Tim. <laughs> thank Take you. care. Merry Christmas.
0: Yep. Bye,
2: guys. Merry Christmas.
0: All right, so that's Tim Alberta, or uh, as I think many would refer to him, an old-school Christian. Yeah. He's a very nice man with a nice demeanor. Indeed. Um, Lovely. So on like uh, my main thesis on evangelicals is, it I, I don't know if it has become a cult of Republican politics, or I think what's more likely is it has always been a cult of Republican politics, and they put a veneer of Jesus over the top of it.
1: Trump, I think, forced to the surface
0: what has been a
1: consistent strain. And Tim kind of grapples with this throughout the book of, you know, because Trump has such a contradiction in terms of his personal life and the marriages stormy daniels and and karen mcdougall and
0: yeah wall street and debauchery and
1: it just made it much more clear that like oh you only cared about that stuff with clinton right because he was on the other team and now that becomes just very transparent and very clear and then the other thing is there's this tremendous sense of like victimhood uh, among this group, right you know, they feel like the culture is getting away from them, and they feel like the demographics are getting away from them, and so it just creates this. Anytime a group is convinced that they're under this like existential threat, you end up with some really unjustifiable behavior. So real. I think that's um, part of what's yeah. going what was on that? here as well. I yes, uh, indeed. So well, that would be a whole other conversation to have with Tim. I didn't want to even open yeah, that can yeah, of worms. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'd be curious what he'd say on that Yeah,
1: um, well, because you talked about the contradictions in the Bible There's also contradictions in, like, how do you apply the teachings of the Bible Because on the one hand, you could be like, oh, the Jews are the chosen people, et cetera, et cetera And that is how many evangelicals end up siding aggressively with Israel, these white evangelicals right? But on the yeah. other hand, you're like, the Bible could not possibly justify what is being done to Palestinians yeah. And by the way, Palestinian Killeth Christians 10,000 kids in right one month
0: <laughs> Like, that's, so, like, the Bible says that
1: Yes <laughs> Oh,
0: man, what was I going to say? <laughs> I um, never learned
1: that path Yes.
0: So it's become and this like he did the thing at the end about like, are you going to pick the cross or the sword? I view it a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. I don't even think these people are reaching for the sword. Trump is a uniquely American phenomenon that needs to be looked at outside of the context of religion. Mm -hmm. He's an American phenomenon. He's a showman. It's all about. The charisma. It's all about the vibes. It's all about the the frequency he taps into with Republican voters, where yeah. it's like, we got one. And you know how this works. They always act like Hollywood, we hate Hollywood, bro. Forget Hollywood. And then the second they get any star on yeah. their side, they're like, Yes, John Voigt, you're amazing. John <laughs> Voigt's in the corner like dying half asleep. They're like, He's with us, he's with us. They've got, <laughs> yeah. like, some random games, like, but what was the game show? There's some game show host. Well, I think it was Pat Sajak, and there's, there's like, a couple game show hosts that are super conservative. Oh, really? And these guys are like,
2: yes, Pat Sajak, yes! Trot him out at every RNC, <laughs> yeah, whatever, And for them, yeah. look, that's
0: what Reagan was, right? He was a star, and they yeah. became president. That's what Trump is. And so I view it more as, like, evangelical Christianity is a cult of Republican politics, and here you have the quintessential example of the perfect leader for them, where everything else falls by the wayside. Everything else falls by the wayside. Yeah. Because, you know, like we were talking about uh, abortion and some people are sincerely like, yeah, you know, I view this not as a political issue. I view it as a moral issue. And that's why many Christians vote the way they vote or whatever, but... You could say the exact same thing about, hey, opposing the Iraq war. It's not a political issue. It's a moral issue. And us Christians are galvanizing to try to end this barbarity in Iraq. And you could say it about cutting the social safety net, right? Republicans always want to cut the social safety net way more than Democrats do. Hey, it's not a political issue. It's a moral issue to make sure that kids have enough to eat in this country. But it never cuts in that direction. And the reason it never cuts in that direction is very simple, because evangelical Christianity is a cult of Republican politics. And there's other brands of Christianity that are not that right yeah and so you know pick a better one like (laughs) catholicism for example is a split like almost exactly 50 50 between republicans in the church and democrats in the church but they're not even the best example because then you have like um the lutheran church i believe is significantly more to the left the black church is significantly more to the left Mm -hmm. so you have all these and and you know his take on the Christianity thing—I'm not surprised by his answer. But as an outsider, I do not only do I see contradictions between the Old and New Testament; I see contradictions from within the New Testament as well. Yeah, not that I don't—I don't know the Bible as well as he does, but you know, it's not that hard to come across contradictions even within the New Testament.
1: I mean, one one of the things we interviewed Tim over on Breaking Points as well, and one of the things I talked with him about there is, you know, is this like cultural tribism, tribalism? Tribalism? Is that a bug or is that a feature of religion? Yeah. Because, I mean, look, people at their worst, they do devolve into these tribal identities. And if you layer on top of a tribal identity, this religious justification that like God wants me to do this horrible thing or support this horrible person, that just supercharges whatever the tribal identity is. And so that's why these, you know, fervent, like ideological um, uh, religious beliefs can be so easily manipulated and so easily weaponized to do things that are unjustifiable. I mean, you just brought up Israel. Israel is a perfect example outside of the American context, like these Jewish settlers who are getting guns and murdering Palestinians and pushing them off their land, they think they are doing the work of God yep. because of this supercharged religious identity. And so that's where, I mean, look, you know, we're not religious, so we have an outsider's perspective on this. And that's where any sort of like really fervent, dedicated, ideological, um, type religious belief to me gets very dicey and can end up in ugly places really, really quickly. And even if you
0: say from within the religious doctrine, this is a non-tribal thing. Sometimes it doesn't fucking matter. People <laughs> will be like, "No, I, I am, I am strident on this, and I, it is my identity." It's like, and yeah,
1: so, yeah, yeah. But this is my identity. Yeah.
0: So that's why you can see extremist Jewish settlers, like you're talking about. Obviously, you could have extreme right-wing dominionist Christians who want to have dominion over mm-hmm. everything. They're very, very authoritarian. You see it within Hinduism with the Hindu nationalists. Mm-hmm. You could even see it among, I'm sure, there's Buddhist factions that are like, it's just now it might be smaller numbers, etc. But they're still, as soon as you have something to base an identity around, of course, you can get into fanatic and i mean that's what honestly what we're looking at with uh evangelical christians and i don't i mean i sort of i've written them off a long time ago only for the fact that they've always at their core had something negative whether it was the moral majority and trying to fight desegregation i mean that's insane fight uh gay rights like they did under the bush era these were the biggest supporters of the iraq war these people and then now they've uh, you know built a cult around donald trump and it's like what am i supposed to say to that you know, it's one thing to convince somebody who's off from you on a couple things here or there, but when somebody has consistently built an identity around every single thing, I have a hardline stance against you. It's like, okay, God yeah. bless, go ahead, like <laughs> have fun.
1: Yeah. Well, I I hadn't really thought through the piece we were talking about there with abortion. That I mean, yes, the goalposts have moved, and now they want a national abortion. Ban, of course. But also. Trump is not even close to being the most pro life. I mean, he has not come out in support of a national abortion ban. Pence did. Like, Pence was right mm-hmm. out there, and he placed the bet on I'm going to be the most pro life. And I think that's what the Republican base mm-hmm. is going to respond to. Not like that anymore.
0: Which comes back not to my like main thesis, anymore. which is what?
1: Cult of personality and cult of religious politics,
0: cult of Republican politics. Yeah, that's what it's become. I don't think you have any better evidence than that right there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, fascinating conversation. Like I said, I really did enjoy um, the book, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian or wherever you fall on the political spectrum. I think he has uh, a lot there that you'll find fascinating, including some of this history of the church, which, um, you know, pieces of which I didn't know.
0: All right, guys, we love you. Everybody, uh, have a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. And there will not be a show next week, but there will be one after that. Um, everybody, do us a big favor. Shoot on down to Substack, sign up, pay five bucks a month, get the video of every interview or debate, and get it a day early. You can also sign up for free if you want to just hear the audio version of the podcast. Remember, we've never had a conversation with an advertiser. You guys help fund this from the ground up. Thank you to everybody who does help fund this from the ground up. It means the world to us. All right, we will see you soon, guys. Peace.